Hello, I'm George Mason, host of Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. How do we understand a call from God? Well, what about stand-up comedy and karaoke? Can that possibly be a way to understand how God might be calling you to ministry? We'll be talking to Andy Stoker, Senior Minister of First United Methodist Church about just that. Hello and welcome to Good God. I'm glad to welcome also to the program uh, the Reverend Dr. Andy Stoker, who is the Senior Minister of the First United Methodist Church in Dallas, my good friend and colleague here and all things good. Uh, so welcome to Good God, Andy. Thank you, George. Glad to have you here today. Thank you. I think um, many people uh, know intuitively that Baptists and Methodists sort of grew up together on the frontier. And uh, if, um, uh, if their grandparents were telling the story, they would tell stories in small towns about how uh, on one Sunday they'd have the Baptist preacher and on one Sunday they'd have the Methodist preacher. Uh -huh. uh, so a lot of people probably think of Baptists and Methodists in a similar way. And yet the, the, the Methodist story is much larger than that. Uh, mm. The Methodist story goes obviously back to England and John Wesley. Uh, say a little bit about uh, the identity of the Methodist tradition, would you? Oh, absolutely. Well, part of, part of the, initial, uh, the initial story began out of Reformation. Right. What, it, what it means to really be the church in cities, in countries that, uh, that are seeing a lag on uh, social, social concerns and social issues. Specifically in Methodism, it happened with children. Mm -hmm. So you have a rabble rouser, John Wesley, and his brother, the poet, Charles, right. who graduate from Oxford, go to Georgia, uh, this penal colony in the burgeoning uh, states, um, and they find themselves extraordinarily pious. They're discovering ways to include people and to exclude people as well in their piety. Wow. And so um, John Wesley uh, actually came back to England after his four years in Georgia and said, um, he, he came back uh, dejected. Mm. Um, he told someone that they were not allowed to come to communion. Wow. That this is a closed table. Yeah. That one experience in Georgia transformed John Wesley's heart and mind in a profound way. So on May 24, 1738, John Wesley is sitting in a little chapel on Aldersgate Street. The preacher is reading the preface of Martin Luther's commentary on the Book of Romans. Right. And his heart is strangely warm. Strangely warm. And so uh, he says, uh, he, he repents of his sin and says that what he is now dedicating his life to is creating an open space. My words, not his. Right. An open space where all people can hear the gospel right. being proclaimed. Yes. Uh, so for the remainder of his years, that's what John Wesley did from that 1738 when he turns 35, mm -hmm. uh, in that conversion experience, he spends the rest of his days never as a church pastor, mm -hmm. but as a reformer. The world is his, is his congregation. What Absolutely. Is the world the, is his parish. The world is his parish. That's right. He's preaching in coal mines, preaching in fields, mm -hmm. preaching on the street. 
He is transforming not only his city, but also training other pastors along the way. Mm -hmm. Well, in that training of other pastors, what he determined was uh, the significant social ills that were happening in England. Yes. And pastors would come to him with a variety of uh, of ways of being and ways of understanding how children, how adults, how those on, on the margins were being treated. And so he developed in, in some ways what, what we now know as Sunday school. Yes. It was the weekday meeting, the mm -hmm. weekday meeting for children who couldn't afford private education mm -hmm. or a parson in their home. Wouldn't that be a great job? A parson in your home. Yeah, you, oh I'm just going to train your children, George. Yes. You hire me. I'm going to train your children right. uh, for nine months out of the year. I'll take the summer off, those three months, and I'll get ready to, to yes. teach your kids. But if you didn't, if you didn't, weren't in that elite class, right. then you weren't getting educated. Right. Child labor was significant. Uh, 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 abuse of women was significant. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's what really rattled people uh, in the Methodist tradition. It's, it was, yes, of course, a theological tradition, but also it was a social movement, a movement toward, toward social justice. Uh, and yet there is the holiness tradition as well of Wesley and this notion of sanctification, of, 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 of ordering your life in such a way that it it's really revolves around Christ and, and, and a moral life. And so in all of our traditions, it seems we have uh, this tension between a notion of spirituality that's more personal and pious and the ordering of the heart and desire and this more social dimension, right, of, uh, of, of addressing ills and trying to make the world reflect better uh, the intentions of God. Uh, and, and I think probably on the frontier, uh, those two, uh, maybe, maybe the heart part, the, uh, uh, the, the spirituality part, was the most appealing. Uh, and yet, when people got converted, they, they left the saloon for the church, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. so in some ways, those things do merge. And, and part of our challenge, I think, as pastors is to figure out how to put those two things together. Huh? The, that's, that is the, the challenge we, we all face. Yes. Um, is where, where that vertical and horizontal yes. meets in the middle. Mm -hmm. When we're loving God and loving neighbor, or John Wesley's idea, vital piety and social holiness. Yes. When those two intersect, therein lies the dream of God. Yes. Therein lies the reign of God. Therein lies the kingdom of God. Yes. This idea that once we see that, then we are finally tapping into what God is up to in the world. Right. And I think in, in a lot of ways, um, our, our two traditions uh, ha have that in, in common. Yes that this is what we're always going for. This right. loving God, loving neighbor, loving God, loving neighbor. Mm -hmm. And when we get into the holy habit, and especially in our partnerships together, mm -hmm. and where we begin to see barriers and boundaries break down, we're gonna meet each other yes. where God and neighbor are met. Right. And that's, that's what uh, invites, invites me, or mm -hmm. that, that's how God continues to invite me into what God is up to. Okay, so you talk about God inviting you. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to your sense of call to ministry. Uh, it, I'm always fascinated by the stories that we ministers tell about how we sense that God was calling us 
Uh, and that language even in itself, many people would say, what is that, like on a phone? Or how, do you, what did you, how did you experience a call to ministry? Can you talk about your experience in that? Sure, sure. Uh, well, I am the grandson of an Avon lady. Oh, well. And it, it was always about sales. Absolutely. Doc, Doc always Avon about, calling. Yeah. <laughs> always about sales. Right. My grandparents were, uh, were very active members at St. Paul's United Methodist Church in El Paso. Okay. Uh, my grandfather was the wedding photographer and my grandmother was the wedding coordinator. Okay. And so they were, we were up at church all the time. Mm -hmm. um, George, my, my father died in a car accident when I was four. And we moved back to El Paso, my mom's hometown, and lived two blocks away from my grandparents. Mm. And uh, they were, Lloyd and Shirley Hallis, were incredible people and touched my life in profound ways. Uh, and part of my call to ministry is, number one, being at church a whole lot. Yes. And number two, being encouraged to really find ways to connect with a diverse people. Okay. Growing up in El Paso, it's a border town. Yes. Uh, Spanish and English, it's a it's right. this beautiful flow yes. back and forth, as as is the border. Mm -hmm. And so finding finding new friends becomes rather rather easy. Yes. When the border is um, is there, you you live in this beautiful town <laughs> where new friends happen all the time. Mm -hmm. um, in my growing up, I was very active in Sunday school. I was mm -hmm. the go-to acolyte yes. on Sunday morning, probably because my children's minister viewed me as too active, and so <laughs> let's give him a job. And so, uh, so uh, growing up in the church, I began to see and sense how, how God would be calling me. I never thought God was calling me to local pastor ministry. Right. I always thought God was calling me to late night. <laughs> I did stand-up comedy. In, I'm not in, surprised. In college. Anybody who knows you yeah. is not surprised. <laughs> thank yes. you. Thank you. Uh -huh. uh, I did stand-up comedy in college. I hosted for two and a half years. I was the main host of karaoke contests uh -huh. in Lubbock, Texas. That's how I made uh, really my real impact okay. on on comedy. And so I never I never imagined myself uh, in in the local pastorate. Right. So because my karaoke career and my stand-up career was really going nowhere, I discovered a local United Methodist Church right across the street from Texas Tech, St. John's United Methodist Church, was hiring a nighttime custodian. Come on. Yeah. You, you started as a sexton. <laughs> I did. I did. Yeah. yeah. So I buffed floors and cleaned the toilets and vacuumed the sanctuary, mopped the altar space, all the, you know, all of the things that, that so, a nighttime So you were a church did. mouse. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh -huh. And it was in my wheelhouse. I could finish a karaoke set. Right. And then unlock the door of the church at 1130 and work till 3 a.m. Right. Then go home and sleep and get ready for, get ready for school. Um, and it was in that experience of how St. Paul's in El Paso was matched with my love of the congregation at, at St. John's, yes. I began to see people in a very different, yes. different way and, uh, and began to fall in love with the people, uh, people who were trying to make an impact on this loving God, loving neighbor, and trying to get it right yes. and accepting even me. You know, this is so interesting because I had a conversation, a similar one, with Rabbi Nancy Kasten, our good yeah, friend. Absolutely. And I asked her about her 
sense of call, and she began to talk about how she fell in love with the people, with the community, with Israel as the people of God, and her identity started there, uh, and then ministry uh, came later. It came, it came out of that as a sense of uh, wanting to study Torah and wanting to you know, learn and then serve the community again. And her spirituality was more of a late blooming thing. Uh, and I thought, you know, that's not the way I was taught to tell my story. Hmm. And yet, as I listened to you and as I reflected upon my actual experience, it was the, the feeling of being among the people of God that started it all. The, I'm at home here. This is, the, this is where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do so that it was less a dramatic voice that called and more a kind of uh, reminder of home that this is, I kept coming back to this place. And that sounds like what you're talking about. Absolutely. This is just who you are. And so to, to get to do it for our work is such a privilege, isn't it? Yes. And you live, you live that out so well, George. You oh, truly well, live you. that out uh, in loving not only your congregation, but loving the people of this city. Thank uh, you. What a gift. What a gift we all have well, because of your leadership, in light of your leadership. Thank you. Well, you're very kind to say so, and uh, it's, it's beautiful to watch you doing that as well now uh, from that important church in downtown Dallas, and uh, much of your work uh, transcends the congregation, and it is uh, your partnership in, in, in lots of things locally that we'll, we'll get into uh, in a little while, uh, but I'm not sure everyone would, uh, would know that we've actually had a, a fairly close collaboration in that before you became senior minister at First Church, uh, First United Methodist Church, uh, you actually served as a pastoral resident there. That's right. And in a cohort that was part of our Wilshire Baptist Church pastoral residency program. Uh, that was a delightful time uh, for me, getting to know you and, you. and sharing in that work. Uh, after we take a quick break, I think we'll come back and explore that more uh, and talk about the, the formation of what it takes to become uh, an effective pastor. Uh, how education and training, both in, in a seminary setting and then in a congregational setting, uh, really helps us to shape us for the work we do. Sounds good. Okay. Faith Forward Dallas at Thanksgiving Square is a broad and diverse coalition of Dallas's faith leaders dedicated to service, hope, and a shared vision for North Texas. Faith Forward Dallas creates and supports a community of respect and compassion for all, sharing in the mission of the Thanksgiving Foundation to heal divisions and enhance mutual understanding. Andy, Wilshire has had a pastoral residency program for I guess about 16 years now, uh, where we have been training young ministers, uh, taking those who have already earned their Master of Divinity degree, sometimes they've been out a little while doing other education or serving the church, but they wanna be pastors. And uh, they come in for two years and serve with us and hone their skills a little more uh, so that they're really ready to be effective pastors of congregations. And uh, one of the beautiful things that happened some years ago is that we were able to expand that cohort 
to include uh, a Methodist and a Presbyterian and Episcopalian. And yep. we had this lovely uh, uh, cohort including Andy Stoker, yep. uh, who served as a pastoral resident, uh, the first one at First United Methodist Church under John Fielder's leadership, uh, Fiedler, sorry. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, we had this opportunity to serve together in some way for two years. Tell us about your experience uh, in that training and how it shaped you and aided in your pastoral identity. Yeah, so the first thing is I never imagined that I would be serving a church in, in the senior minister, as a senior minister. Uh, never imagined it. I thought uh, in completing a PhD program and applying for seminary jobs, certainly I'm gonna go teach in a seminary. My focus right. had been youth ministry right. and young adult uh, conversion experiences. That was really yes. what, my, what my main focus of research was. And I was serving in our bishop's office for two and a half years. And uh, I was in a great job, and it was an exhausting job. And John Fiedler called and he said, I wonder if you might be a great candidate for this pastoral residency program. And he told me about the cohort, that it was gonna be interdenominational. That piqued my interest. Um, and he said, you may be the old man of the group. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I might've been the old man of the group, but I was, I was on a common footing yes. with with the the collaborative uh, colleagues that I that I had, um, there were eight of us in total, and we began to see and sense how God was working in our lives and what we were what we were really called to, mm -hmm. um, and how our our ministry together might might make sense uh, not only in our own denomination but how this collaborative experience works out, yes. um, and my. My main takeaway was in our experience together, uh, Wilshire Baptist and First United Methodist Church, uh, I found more in common with our mm -hmm. ministry together. There was yes. more alignment in our ministry together than I once would have thought. Yes. Uh, in a big city like Dallas, you have a Methodist church and a Baptist church. Mm -hmm. um, certainly our agendas would have been very different, but when we started to find this alignment, there was this powerful synergy happening. And uh, the gift of grace that you gave me was this constant uh, pushing and prodding me to gain, gain a footing in my own voice, uh, find a way to determine uh, what, you, what I'm really called to, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. live up to it and into it. Yes. So, um, our, our ministry together, it's hard to believe it was eight years ago. It is hard to believe, that first, it really is. That we is. first met. Yes. Uh, but standing in the pulpit on Sunday morning at First United Methodist Church, um, my confidence comes from our experiencing. Wonderful. Our experience well, that, that really pleases me because uh, we, we say about this work that we hope to add to every pastoral resident by the time they leave competence and confidence. Yeah. And it clearly, I, I don't know how much competence you needed to add because you yeah. came in at a high level, but, uh, but to, to hear this confidence that you were able to carry with you is a beautiful thing. Really, uh, it, it, it does help uh, to round out the training of ministers because 
most of our seminary life uh, is oriented toward uh, mastering the intellectual tradition and the, uh, the liturgical traditions of our churches, uh, gaining a sense of how to read scripture and how to understand our church history, uh, doctrine and things of that nature. So it's a, it's a rather more academic approach. And when we come to a local congregation, there's a whole lot about the, what, what we call the cure of souls mm -hmm. uh, that is uh, much more relational, uh, much more about learning how to interpret congregations, mm -hmm. uh, to interpret the life of a community and, and serve it. And so by doing this work uh, in the midst of ministry and reflecting upon it, it, it really aids, I think, and strengthens our uh, training and formation. Yeah, well, if, if you'll remember, those two years, George, I was serving in the capacity of Director of Congregational Care. Yes, yes. And every week, we'd come to you with our sermon ideas. Right. And for about six months there, the only sermons I had were funeral sermons. It's <laughs> true, because you were doing a lot of them. I did a lot of funerals. That's right, right. And part of it was, uh, okay, well, Andy, find your voice in this. Yes. Um, because, and to your point about relationships, Sometimes uh, as pastors and what I reflect on our experience together and watching mm -hmm. you in ministry, um, sometimes we find our best ministry in those transitions in people's lives, mm -hmm. in that thin space, yes. as Barbara Brown Taylor calls mm -hmm. it, that thin space between life and death. Yes. This idea that there is some kind of transition and we as pastors are the bridges Yes. in people's lives. And yes. why, not, why not hone my homiletical, my sermon skills on funerals? Right. Uh, it's one of the great privileges of ministry, I believe, yes. great privileges in ministry to, uh, to serve a family in that way, to acknowledge the gospel and how the gospel affected change in this person's life. Right. And at the same time, provide a worshipful, worshipful moment for the congregation to be reminded that there's something much more than this temporal life. I, I think people would be amazed at how um, happy we are in our vocation when we are in those critical moments. It, it's not, the word happy is not privileged maybe mm -hmm. is a better word, yeah, yeah. A, a sense of satisfaction that we get to stand with people all through the life cycle in those really challenging moments of transition. And when other people are anxious about that, people invite us into those moments and we get to stand there and hold their hands and pray with them and help them to interpret this uh, intersection of time and eternity, mm -hmm. which is just a beautiful privilege, isn't it? Yeah, it is, it is. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that we did during that pastoral residency uh, time and continue to do, and you continue to help us in our residency program now, is to uh, uh, help uh, each of our residents learn how to look at the congregational life through a family systems perspective. Mm -hmm. This is really a, a, a subject that's dear to you because it's, it's part of your, your PhD work and your study of family systems. When we say family systems, can you give us a thumbnail about that? Because it's not just about church life. This is about all of our families. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the thumbnail sketch is the family is 
the beginning stages of how we are going to relate to the world. Mm -hmm. And so it's uh, our biological family, certainly, and our voluntaristic family, those, those that we've adopted or have adopted us mm -hmm. in a way. Uh, that family systems theory is a way of seeing how family life can be expanded into our work life, into our school lives, into our church lives, and how our intersection and our interconnectedness make meaning for for our lives. Yes. And uh, family systems theory for me has been transformative. Uh, for me in my pastoral understanding, uh, I have grown far more curious about people than judgmental. Ah. Uh, in, as we relate to families, it's always, it has been helpful for me to, uh, to have the experience of sitting with George and imagining how George could come up with this deep theological understanding or how he's found himself in his pastoral ministry or seeing him interact in a restaurant or on the street or whatever mm -hmm. else, that something had to happen with George his entire life long. Yes. It just wasn't, it just, it's not just happenstance. This is a product of who George is and what, uh, what those persons who have been in George's life have given him up till this, this point. And I think it's important for us to recognize that it's not just possible to, to have those uh, connections and interactions. They already are there. The question <laughs> is whether we are aware of them and, and, and whether we are aware enough that they help us rather than hurt us in the decisions we make, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I think about uh, when I find myself challenged with a particular member of, of the congregation, say, one of the questions I ask myself is, why does that person keep pushing my button? <laughs> Who is it in my family history that I have unresolved issues with, right? That Instead of putting it all on that person, it's really what's going on back here. It's not so much what's going on here. And if I go back here and address that, actually it changes the way I deal with this person. It's, it's, it's quite an interesting uh, way of, of looking at problem solving and, and dealing with emotional crisis, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, it's the practical nature of family systems theory is just as you describe it. Uh, is seeing, seeing that person in front of you not as a problem, mm -hmm. but instead of, uh, instead a symptom. Yes. A symptom of a larger dis-ease yes. that may be happening, you're exactly right, may right. be happening within myself. A absolutely. And when we can discover for ourselves right. that experience with a person, right. then our judgment falls away from that person. Right. And our own discernment, we get to do what we do best, which yes. is let's delve deep. Yes. I talk about family systems theory as the most selfish thing anyone can do. <laughs> know because, thyself. Because you're supposed to work on yourself. <laughs> right. Don't work on everybody else. Right. Right. Will you please stop working on me, <laughs> is what the congregation is really saying. Exactly. And, and they, what they are asking us to do is to model what it means to be 
authentic and vulnerable, to have taken account of what's going on with us so that that gives them permission to do the same. And when we do, some of the tension drops out as we try to see together what this family system can be. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And when, when we're in churches, so let's, let's go beyond ourselves. Yes. When we're in churches, in the Methodist church, we're assigned. Yes. In the Baptist tradition, uh, the congregation selects you. Right. So the process of adoption mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Is, is a little, it, it's more discerning in the Baptist world. Uh, we hope. We, <laughs> we hope. That's right. In the Methodist tradition, it's here's your pastor. Yes. Good luck. Right. And right. so uh, if, if, you have, uh, if you have a family systems background and you're able to see and sense what you're bringing to any situation, mm -hmm. if you've been prayed for and discerned and prayed over uh, right. throughout or you show up yes. on July 1st, uh, you have this opportunity truly to live up to your very best self. Right. And you can be compassionately curious about the congregation you're serving. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine the years that you've served Wilshire Baptist, that you've probably seen that family system change and ebb and flow yes. with different social, cultural, uh, neighborhood changes right. that have happened. and without the wherewithal and confidence you have and differentiation that you have within yourself, mm -hmm. I can only imagine that it would have been far more difficult than what you faced. Well, I, I think that it's um, a matter of um, degrees of success and failure. Mm -hmm. And some of that is about learning how to manage your own anxiety in the midst of all of that. Um, by the grace of God, we've been able to uh, navigate some of those transitions in a way that gives us a hopeful congregation, and I know you have one as well. It's really good to be your colleague, Andy, and to uh, talk through these things together. Uh, I look forward to more conversation to come, uh, but thank you for joining us on Good God today. Thank you, George. You bet. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Here's grateful appreciation to Evolve Technology for location production facilities. Evolve Technology for home audio, video, and lighting design. Enjoy more Think Less with Evolve. See their great work at EvolveDallas.com. Thanks to Wendy Crispin Caterer for guest parking accommodations. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2018 by Faith Commons. Faith Forward Dallas at Thanksgiving Square is a broad and diverse coalition of Dallas's faith leaders dedicated to service, hope, and a shared vision for North Texas. Faith Forward Dallas creates and supports a community of respect and compassion for all. Sharing in the mission of the Thanksgiving Foundation to heal divisions and enhance mutual understanding. 